A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Spark London. We tell true stories. We tell them live. And we tell them all across London. To attend one of our live shows, go to sparklondon.com. It's lovely. So, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming to Spark London. This is a wonderful venue. It looks like a brothel having a birthday party. Um, So nights like these are absolutely brilliant, I think, because I think it's really important to get voices of sex workers out there, get them into the world, and get people to listen to us. And not fucking Anne Hathaway. Well, I know all about sex work because I played a prostitute in 18th century France. Uh, so, Lord Saul, we've been in the, uh, in the media this week, haven't we, our sex workers? We've been doing some good causes. We've uh, reduced the House of Lords. Yeah. And, uh, and gunned down a serial killer. Yes! Yeah. I think that not only deserves decriminalisation, but a fucking medal. Yeah. Uh, We are going to have our first storyteller of the evening. Are you ready? Yes! Excellent. Uh, This is a very special young lady. She uh, has come from the sex worker Open University herself. I think it's going to be an absolutely brilliant one. Please welcome to the stage, Tony! I was going to tell a very loosely unrehearsed little set of vignettes tonight about what it's like to be a sex worker and think about having a double life. And everyone who is in the audience who's a sex worker will know what that feels like. Even the most out and proud sex workers know what it's like to have a double life. And some of us really, they really live in the closet for years, like I did. Uh, and everything you do becomes an exercise in secrecy, right? And uh, this is horrible and a result of stigma and all that stuff. So I used to work in a brothel and I had this manager in case you didn't know, it is illegal to run a brothel in this country. So the manager, she had a lot to be concerned about. She was always anxious about being busted running this brothel. You know, she's uh, always looking over her shoulder, worrying about getting caught all the time. So she used to say to all of the girls who worked in this brothel, when you finish working a shift here and you've got a waste paper bin full of used condoms, uh, you better make sure that those, you know... Those get taken somewhere, they're evidence of a crime. She called it the naughty bin. (laughs) And she said, 
Never ever, when you finish your shift at about 9 p.m. and you leave the brothel, don't ever bin the naughty bin on the same street that we bin our trash because it's going to get found by the cops. You know, she was, she was paranoid. So she instated this rule that said you have to take your naughty bin when you finish your shift as far away from the brothel as you can get it and put it in a bin somewhere far away. Uh, so every hooker that worked at this brothel would do this. They'd take their own naughty bag away after every shift. And I used to take it away with me and worry. I used to worry about the fact that I didn't want to bin it in my own house, you know? Like, I didn't want to take it home because I too had to worry about the contents of the naughty bin. You know? Um, so... It had to be somewhere between the two locations. Anyway, so one night I, was, uh, I had a particularly busy day. I left the brothel with my naughty bin. And it was double bagged, you know, like in a bag, in another bag, and then in another plastic carrier bag. And I'm carrying it over my arm, the crook of my arm. Stop at Marks and Spencer's on the way home to pick up dinner. Um, and it was a busy day, you know. I got like a heavy bag of jizzy condoms over the mouth. And I'm like, I really deserve a treat. So I thought I'd buy myself a microwavable cannelloni a nice bottle of rosé, and some nice bread, you know, the good stuff from m uh, Knackered as well. I don't know if you know what it's like seeing 10 clients in a day. It's tiring. So I'm on the tube. I go home to London Bridge. On my way back to my flat, I've been the naughty bin, get rid of that grossness, and go back to my flat. And my flatmate's at home. And I do definitely have the double life thing going on here with my flatmate a few years ago. He didn't know what I did. He had a very normal job. I was very ashamed of what I was doing in secret once a week, you understand. So I come in, he's like, oh, babes, how have you been? I'm like, oh, you know, just been, been at the pub, you know, out with my friends, didn't tell him what I'd been doing all day. And he's like, you must be starving. It's like 10 p.m. And I'm like, yeah, just going to have myself microwavable dinner, nice cannelloni. <laughs> Put my dinner on the stove, open the bag, and a waft of jizz <laughs> just hits the room. Um... I'd binned my dinner. I'd binned, I'd binned, I'd binned a nice cannelloni and it was gone. It was gone. And all I had was uh, <laughs> 10 jizzy condoms and a lot of baby wipes. Uh, so I had to run out back to the street to bin it because, of course, this double life thing means that you just don't want to risk. I, I, I felt too... I immediately was like... <laughs> and then put it in the bin outside and didn't have any dinner that night but it's just an example of the lengths we go to not even just sex workers but the auxiliary you know the managers in this industry are all terribly paranoid constantly about getting caught right there's this stigma that sticks to sex work in every single area everything that touches sex work is stigmatized to the extent where people will go to these enormous lengths to hide it like i had this client once he came to see me very nervous just booked me for a, an hour appointment to come out and uh, try something, something sexy, some kind of role play. He's obviously very nervous. He turns up, he sits down on the bed, he pays me the money. We start doing some kind of role play chat. He gets very excited uh, and, and he gets an erection. And uh, just before we cut to the, uh, the intercourse part, he loses his bottle and he decides he wants to leave. And that happens quite a lot in sex work. Sometimes people just don't want to go through with it, and that's fine. I said, that's fine, you can go, no worries. I've probably got my money. <laughs> and um, before he went to leave, I realised he, yeah, he'd been excited for quite a while. He had a, a bit of pre-cum on the front of his trousers, like a big old, I don't know, <laughs> big old patch. 
So, and he was he going straight back to the office. I work in Soho, and he was going to go back to his office. So I had to, before he left, in his embarrassment at having terminated the booking, I had to get out a hairdryer <laughs> to hairdry the patch of, of, of pre-cum. And it, was, it wasn't dignified. But yeah, just to, to leave you with one more example of the lengths we will go to to keep this double life thing up. It's not just clients uh, or managers, it's also us. I, I started working a few years ago for a, a parlor, which is like, you know, it's the brothel, the aforementioned brothel, uh, but it was a submissives house, right? So professional submissives, you're being paid to perform submissive scenes and take a beating across the arse every so often. In my first week, they had an enormous amount of bruising across my butt, you know, like I'd taken a caning and a whipping and I was covered in bruises and I wanted to get rid of it. And my manager, the aforementioned manager who was so, you know, weird about the jizzy bin, <laughs> told me for a joke that if you smear melted chocolate across your ass <laughs> and pull your pants up and sleep in it, that the bruising would go overnight. So I tried it and it was wrong. <laughs> I did wake up with a butt covered in chocolate and it smelt great. Thank you very much. some fantastic work with the sex worker open university I, I do recommend giving them a google um and i've just got weird visions of naughty bin being the dirty uncle of dusty bin isn't that funny <laughs> So that's, that's an image. Um, okay, so uh, uh, we have got our next storyteller is a member of the East London Strippers Collective and they're a group... Thank you. And they're a group who self-organise um, and produce events, talks and engages in the political debate around striptease in SEV venues. So please welcome Eddie! <laughs> Hello. Oh my God, those lights are bright. Fabulous. <laughs> I'm supposed to be talking about the audiences that we get in the pubs and the clubs, but I mainly work in the pubs. The majority of our audiences are gentlemen. The regulars know the rules and they know how to behave. And they often can be great fun and good to meet. However, as in any walk of life, you will occasionally run into dickheads. <laughs> I was working at a pub called The Peel on a Saturday night, and after I came off the stage and took my iPhone off of airplane mode, because you don't want your mum calling you when you're like, <laughs> it's happened before, I'm like, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> it's my mum. <laughs> so then I logged into Facebook and had a message from Cheeky, who's a dancer at the White Horse. And she was just basically complaining about a stag party that was in the White Horse at that particular point. And she sent me a video. She said, these guys are a fucking nightmare. This is what they're like. And the video that she sent was, <laughs> the gremlins watch Snow White. <laughs> and if you remember the gremlins, they're all in the cinema going, <laughs> throwing beer bags of crisps on their head <laughs> and she was like this is what they're like and I thought this is hilarious so I showed it to everyone else in the changing room and we started this conversation about who are the worst audiences um, it's a close call it's, it's very stiff competition 
But the contenders for the worst audience in a strip club are football crowds, <laughs> stag parties, the Christmas cunts, <laughs> and a mixed office groups. <laughs> Football crowds. Currently, I work in a pub that's near King's Cross, and you get football. You get all the kind of people coming down from from the north. On the fifteenth, we have the delights of Derby County. Oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> I'm working the late shift, so they're going to be absolutely shit faced. I'm dreading it. Sometimes they can be fun. Sometimes you take your top off on stage, and they all go. Whoa! Oh, and you're like, wow, guys, you're so easily pleased. This is great. <laughs> football is a very specific beast. Rowdy football crowds are not peculiar to strip clubs. You know, they go to all kinds of pubs. Sometimes they're fun. All the whooping and the hollering is usually something that I find hilarious. But most of the time, they turn into a nightmare. This is because they've been drinking since they got out of bed. Or they all get on the train at Derby. And they were just, 8 a.m., crack open a beer. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> so whether their team wins or loses, it's the same outcome. There is a point where they turn. And you're going around trying to collect for your show, so you collect all your pounds in your, your jug. By that, when they've reached that point, it's like, fuck off, fuck off, I've already paid. Get your tits out, get your tits out. And you're kind of like, well, that's the idea, but I'm not doing it for free, so please fucking pay me. (laughs) And then the bar refuses to serve them, and then the security move in, and it's all over. Up to a certain point, these kind of crowds can be fun because the gloves are off, and you're kind of at liberty to banter back with them. And you can be really cheeky and you can throw, like, insults at them. And it's quite fun. Humour is always your best friend in these uh, situations. Uh, And then we're on to stag parties. Again, these can be fun, but it depends on how drunk they are. In the old school pubs, it usually involves humiliating the stag. His friends will, like, club together, get a load of money together, and we'll take him up on stage, and a couple of girls will come on, and everyone's lap dancing for him, maybe take his shirt off, take his belt off, tie him up a little bit, give him a bit of a beating, and all of his friends are going, (laughs) and cheering, and it can be quite fun. But if you're unlucky enough to get them somewhere at the end of the route... And at the end of the night, when they're really, really drunk, they are the gremlins watch Snow White. (laughs) (laughs) Next up, we have the Christmas cunts, the next contenders (laughs) for this accolade. We know they're coming and we must steal ourselves. They're usually the office workers who only go to strip clubs once a year, and it's their naughty little treat during the festive season. But they're not used to the environment. A few drinks in a normal pub starts off the evening, or the staff Christmas party, of course, and then they pluck up the courage to enter the forbidden realm. Basically, they have no idea about the rules and the etiquette, even though they are clearly told by the security. But they get embarrassed because they're in front of people that they usually have to be professional with, so overcompensate by being dicks. (laughs) We get really sick of this, especially if the club has, you know, gone, uh, oh, yeah, we're going to do a theme night, uniforms, uniforms, so you're dressed as a nurse, and they're like, all right, oh, can you look here, it's a bit, oh, look at this, I think this needs checked out, and it's like, yeah, fuck off. (laughs) I'm actually a stripper, I can't help, I can't help you there. (laughs) Mixed, Mixed office crowds, the final contender. 
These all can also be a version of the Christmas cunts. Possibility one is that everyone makes a great big show of how cool they are with the whole thing. Yeah, we don't mind it. We think it's cool. Yeah, we're really open-minded. The girls in the group talk about how they've done some pole dancing classes. It's great for fitness. It's amazing. <laughs> Everyone's like, really cool. Possibility two is where it turns the other way, and the alpha females of the office group begin to get competitive and bitchy with the strippers. Getting a bit close to the stage, making comments like, oh, <laughs> look at her cellulite, oh my God. And things like that, refusing to pay. It's like, babes, you're watching my show. Don't give me any excuses, I'm, I'm female, I'm gay, or whatever, whatever it is, I don't know. You paying? You come to watch the show, you pay. That's it, as you would pay a DJ, as you would pay a band, as you would pay an actor. Then the men get defensive and feel that they're women. You know, they have to protect their women. So they overcompensate by being nasty to the dancers, making a show of how they think, oh, the dancers are all sluts. Yeah, we don't find them attractive. We think they're sluts. So you get this ridiculous, <laughs> ridiculous, interesting phenomenon where the guys are all who have... Well, yeah, you get this just respectability politics game, basically. But what often happens is, like, a few weeks later, one or two of them will come in on their own without the gang to check it out, and they're all really nice, and they're really humble, and they have private dances, and they're respectful and everything. And we all kind of... Because it happens so often, everyone's like, hello, Mr. Hypocrisy, we have been expecting you. <laughs> <laughs> So basically, if anyone's being a dick, it's just, you know, group mentality, showing off to your mates. <laughs> but we can get some great audiences. We can get some really, really good audiences. At the Peel, a birthday party of six girls came in, and they were amazing. Often when girls come in, there's that moment of worry of like, oh my God, is it going to turn into one of those nasty moments? But they were amazing. They were fantastic. They all got really drunk. They were buying the customers' drinks, they were buying the dancers' drinks, they were buying the bar staff drinks. <laughs> they were singing along to all the songs everyone was dancing to. They were chatting away with everyone. And at the end of the shift, we got them all on stage. So all the dancers and all these six girls were brought on stage. And we were getting them to twerk and to grind and teaching them a few pole moves. So they were great. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Welcome to the stage. She's come all the way from Lancashire, so she deserves extra applause. Please welcome Ava! Thanks. No Lancashire accent, so you will be able to understand me. Don't panic. <laughs> so I'm a sex worker, I'm completely independent, and I love my job. That's my introduction. Thank you. So I get this text from a client who I've seen a couple of times, and he says, uh, I'd really like to try pegging. Now, I don't know what pegging is, but you all do, don't you? <laughs> I don't know what pegging is. So a quick trip to Google indicates that pegging is actually strap-on sex. So have a think about it. Text him back to say, I guess I'm willing to give it a go. This is not something I've ever done before, and I don't have a strap-on. So he texts me back to say, okay, I've never done it either, um, but I'd really like to try it, and I'd like my first time to be with someone I'm comfortable with like you. And I think, oh, that's really nice. You know, like, I've seen him a couple of times. I've obviously made him feel at ease. You know, to be honest, in this job, that's kind of as sweet as it gets. Oh, anal virginity. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so 
go think about it, have a talk with my very understanding boyfriend, and decide, like, no, I, I can do this. I can do this. Okay, I can, I can do this. Bring it on. He's, he's not done it before, so he's not, got no real expectations. I, I can do this. Okay. So uh, on the day, he arrives, shows up at the apartment, walks across the car park with an Ann Summers bag, very discreet. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, neighbours. Gives me the fee for the hour, and then sort of goes off, goes off for a shower and says, you'd like to have a look at what's in the bag. So I uh, goes off for a shower, and I open up the bag, and there's a box. And I open up the box, and it's like a self-assembly kit <laughs> to build a strap-on vibrator. And I start to think, Jesus, there's like eight different parts. Oh, my God. <laughs> I start to experience kind of flat-pack panic, you know. <laughs> I, this is, okay. So, uh, you know, this isn't, this isn't how the hour normally starts. So what's going on? <laughs> so I think, oh, my God. So I try and get all the cellophane off all the different things. And there's like, there's like this metal ring. And then there's a dildo and then the battery pack and the harness and all these buckles and straps and things. And I think, okay, put the batteries in the battery pack. I can do that bit. And then I'm sort of peering at the instructions in my undies, like you do, like thinking, this is, this is weird. And uh, I start to think, oh my God, I'm going I'm to have to assemble this because presumably he's going to come out of the shower and expect it to be like ready for action. <laughs> I don't know if any of you have ever had to assemble a strap on vibrator against the clock before. <laughs> quite stressful. <laughs> it's like a perverted version of the generation game, you know, it's weird. <laughs> so so doing my best, and he comes out of the shower, and I'm still kind of struggling with this thing. And I say, oh, blimey, trying to make light of the situation, like, oh, this is more stressful than putting shelves up, wow. Uh, I need to get a man in, oops. <laughs> it's the wrong thing to say when you've got a man in. So uh, and he laughs about it, and then he just lies on the bed, just watching me do it. <laughs> so I, I sort of give him, give him the lube to get into. He's bought this booty relaxed lube. I don't know how that's different from normal lube, but okay, it makes him happy. So he gets into that, and then, then eventually we sort of work on it together and manage to eventually manage to put it together. And it's like almost a high five moment. Yeah, we built a strap on. Get worse, you know. <laughs> thing I've never done before. Well done there. So I've got a strap on. It's ready to go. Like, I don't really know the etiquette for how this works. Like, do you want to get straight on with this? Or do you want to, like, so we'll put that to one side and, like, have a kiss and a cuddle first and get to have a chat and do other things. And then we get to a point where he's ready for it. And so, as an aside, I know that some people don't really like condoms because they don't like having to break to put condoms on because it feels like a disruption in the flow of sex, you know. You've got to stop and get the condom and get it out of the wrapper. Let me tell you, that is as nothing compared to having to break to strap the girl into a harness. It's like, it's really complicated. Like, oh, I think the leg goes in there, and then, oh, it's on backwards, that's not good. Like, what's going on? Get, finally get it, get it on, get everything tightened, and then I'm in it. And then it's like, wow, I've, like, got a cock. It's weird. You know, I've never had one of my own before, so it's brilliant. And it's like, it's quite a responsibility. You know, I've got this quite large, not huge, but quite large sort of purple squidgy cock. <laughs> and, and I start to think like, wow, this is, you know, you could, you could do some damage with this. You know, I never really thought about it like that before. Like, my vagina didn't have razor wire equipped or anything. There's no teeth down there. It'd be hard to hurt someone physically anyway with, with the vagina. But like, with a cock, you could really hurt someone with that. And then that's a responsibility that you've got. And as things progress, I start to realise that, like, obviously with your cock you can, you, and with your fingers, you can kind of feel to the end of it, and I can't. 
feel to the end of it, so I kind of don't know if it's in the right place, or I can't feel when someone's tensing or not, or what's going on, so I have to kind of rely on keep checking, are you okay, are you sure you're okay, you feeling good? keep telling me that you're okay, because I'm really, I don't want to hurt you, you know, I don't want this to be a bad thing, so uh, just keep checking, and it's all okay, and, uh, and it's a, like it's this brilliant experience that I had, and he really enjoyed himself, and that was lovely, you know, that, that happened. And afterwards, he said he liked it so much that he'd, he'd like to, to do that again, eventually. Uh, but he was married, so he decided to leave it with me. <laughs> so, he just sort of, so then I've got a strap-on that I can't use because it's not mine. So and I thought, no, I, this is okay. You know, I think I, think I can do this. So I came, I came to London and went on a sex shop tour of London, just went around all the sex shops everywhere. I went to this brilliant place called Shh in Hoxton, don't know if you know about it, it's very, yeah, it's good, isn't it, very lady-friendly, and I went for a fitting, for a strap-on, it's sort of lovely, you know, and they just looked at me and said, I think you're a small, I think you're going to be a small harness, so I got the small harness, and they said, go in the changing rooms and try it on, oh, and take one of the dildos in the bargain bin when you're on your way down, Oh, I felt sorry for the dildos in the bargain bin. <laughs> so you try it on, and you look in the mirror, and you're like, I think that's and then you go back up and they say, do you want a small size or do you want the medium or the large? And I think, well, I'll go with the small to start with and then we'll see where we go from there, you know. I think that'll be okay, it'll be enough. So, uh, so I, I have a strap on now. So I have this weird likes list of like vanilla, 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 really, really simple strap on. <laughs> 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 that, that is what I do. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. It's like proper stand-up with some proper stand-up heels. Those were brilliant. And we're going to have the fantastic, amazing Ellie! Uh, my name's Ellie, and I've, I'm really nervous, so I'm going to take my shoes off. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's really bright, so I can't actually see any of you, which is probably a good thing. Um, I now work as a dominatrix, and I used to work in a parlour as a... Pro sub, actually the jizz bin parlour. Woo! Woo! <laughs> um, jizz bin! Woo! <laughs> and um, so, uh, so anyway, as part of uh, my job as both a dominatrix and as a pro sub, and probably any kind of sex worker, a large part of uh, what makes us successful is our ability to tell lies. Um, so I'm going to tell you two stories this evening, two short ones. Um, both of which have the moral of um, don't ever lie, ever. Um, <laughs> because it just gets you into too much trouble. So um, the first story involves when I was working back at the parlour. We used to have customers. We wouldn't really know who was coming in from, from person to person. Or perhaps you'd have a regular who you could sort of predict what was going to happen. I had one of these regulars who was 83 years old and I should just clarify at this point, it's not a lie when I tell you that actually it wasn't the most fun in the whole world that I ever had. Um, and he would come in and there was a receptionist there. The way that it worked was that the receptionist brought the client in uh, and then I would usually go and introduce myself and ask what they wanted and then we'd take the money and, and then go back in the other room and, and then go back in. Um, but with this particular client, he didn't want to acknowledge that it was a paid arrangement, so he would give the envelope with the money and a script to the receptionist. Um, and this client, he would always come up with these ludic 
No, that's wrong. Not ludicrous. Um, unusual <laughs> uh, <laughs> requests um, for for various various different things. Um, and the first time I ever met him, uh, the receptionist brought in this script, and I was sort of manically reading it in the uh, in the front room. And I had to go in um, with an 83-year-old man perched on the chair, just like that. And I had to go up to him, topless. And with no sense of sarcasm or wanting to die from laughing, I had to say to him, I had to hold my breasts just like this, and then lean into his face like this, and then jiggle them like this, and say, how do you like them apples? <laughs> so this was this guy, and, I, and every, every single time he would come to see me, it was always something different, and I never quite knew what to expect. And then one day, the, re <laughs> the receptionist came to me, and she, she gave me the script as normal. And the, I opened the letter, the, the script, and it said, Dear Mia, you once told me that you were a yoga instructor. At this point, I should clarify, I never said that. He's, I, 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 I've, my spine's like a question mark. I obviously don't do yoga. I, I just have never done yoga. But he said, um, you told me once that you were a yoga instructor. Um, I would like to capitalize on this um, by having you audition for my yoga school. Um, and I was like, shit. Like, I, d I literally don't know anything about yoga. But he's 83, so how much will he really know about yoga? So, you know, whatever. I'll just go in with full of confidence and just try and do as many poses as I possibly can with my legs, like, akimbo. And, and, and then hopefully that will be fine. And it was, and he enjoyed it, and I didn't, but that, that's okay because I was getting paid. And I... <laughs> And so afterwards, he, he decided that he'd enjoyed it so much that he would write a review about it. And the review said, <laughs> Mia's uh, told me many moons ago that she was a yoga instructor, and I finally got to see her in her yoga amazingness. And what happened as a result of that was then I got lots of people <laughs> who would all come to me and say, you're Mia, you're the yoga lady, aren't you? And so this carried on. And then every shift I would have, I would have at least one or two people who would say to me, you're the yoga lady, I want some, some yoga. And <laughs> so, I, I, so what happened was like, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to be confident and I'm going to do the legs akimbo thing because that worked last time and it, it was all fine. So I did, and this carried on for like six months, and everybody was happy. So eventually, I started believing that actually I was Mia, the lady who did yoga. <laughs> and after about six months, I went in uh, to find a very good-looking young gentleman in there. And he said to me, um, you're Mia, the, the, the lady who does yoga, aren't you? And I said, yes, yes, I am. Um, and, and he said, well, actually, I'd, I'd quite like to do this scenario where you're auditioning for my yoga school. Um, and, you know, we should do that. And I was like, yeah, we should. This is, is going to be good. Um, and, <laughs> and so he's counting the money. And I always find that part of a session sort of fairly frightening because, uh, you know, it, it, not frightening, but awkward because you just sort of sit in silence as he counts out money. So I said to him, um, so what do you do then? And he said, I'm a yoga instructor. <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> 
Um, and then I tried to Google on my phone, like, in a minute, like, how many yoga poses can I, can I learn? And the only one that I could learn was, like, that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and anyway, so I went in, and I was just feeling really nervous and, and whatever. Um, and I thought, well, maybe this will be okay. Maybe this will be okay. And I went in, and I started with my general routine of legs akimbo yoga. And um, I looked at him, and his face was what I could only call just bewildered. <laughs> <laughs> and I, of course, just wanted the whole world to disappear. But the only thing that did disappear was his erection. And it was very, very quick, and it was just awful. And, and so that's my first story about why you should never lie to clients, because that was a disaster. My second story, which is much shorter, I have a client who's a yuppie, and he likes to buy me yuppie clothes um, for me to wear out in public. Um, and they're always very expensive, and I hate them. I would rather have the money any day. And he's a very, he's a big fan of buying me shorts. So um, he, he asked me one day, he said, oh, I've got, I've got a treat for you. I've got this thing that I want to buy for you. And it was a shorts suit. So it was pink shorts, very short shorts, I might add. And I don't ever wear shorts because, well, I hate them. Um, but I, it was a pink shorts and a pink blazer and a slightly lighter pink blouse. Um, and I hated it. And so I said, well, I tell you what, instead of buying me the short suit, why don't you buy me some running shorts? Because then I can think of you lovingly when I run. I don't run. <laughs> but uh, it's okay. Um, and so he bought me these shorts, and I, it worked so well. I got out of having this pink suit shit thing and so I started bluffing it and even got this app on my phone that was like I've been running like miles just thinking about you and you know it's been amazing and I just feel like these shorts just make me run faster if anything and you know and so then he came to me and he said um one day he said you know we've got to meet this Sunday um I've actually got a really nice surprise for us and I was like, okay, if this is a yuppie suit, I've got it covered because I'm going to, like, just ask for a top or something to go with the shorts. And he said, I've booked us in for a 10K race. <laughs> and I would just like to just end. I don't know how well you'll see it, but this right here is why you never, ever should lie to clients. <laughs> So I was thinking of like uh, other kind of perspectives that we get from true stories, and I realised that we haven't heard from the clients. And um, one of I know, <laughs> fuck them, fuck them, never liked them anyway. Uh, so, I, but, but so the, the closest we can get to the clients are our reviews. And uh, <laughs> I wanted to read you one of my favourites. Uh, so this, because it's all true stories, this is verbatim. Uh, word by word, one of my favourite reviews uh, that I've ever read. Um, because it was a guy that I got quite um, quite obsessed with because he was really prolific. He used to write like like four or five reviews a week. And, and I thought, oh, fucking hell. Jesus. Uh, so I wanted to know a bit more about him. So the more I read, the more I learned. And I, I realised that he, he sort of never paid more than 60 quid. <sighs> And, uh, and, and he lived in the, in the centre of Harrogate. So I realised he was probably this little old guy in a flat cap who lived with his mum that's got Alzheimer's. It's all right, I'll just leave her wandering around the world food whilst I nip out for a quickie. And this... 
<laughs> this, ladies and gentlemen, is one of his genuine reviews. Harrogate. Terraced basement flat, clean and tidy. Reasonably safe, with plenty of parking on the streets nearby. <laughs> she was Chinese, average looker, long hair, nice tits, hairy slack gash. I've been here before and had some right crackers, but this was an exception. It started with a brief bit of mish, and then doggy, and their completion by hand. Her snatch was very slack. It was like pinning the top of a Wellington boot. She applied liberal amounts of loo, which made it even worse. Oral technique was poor, and her hand job was quite energetic. <laughs> although far from sensual. <laughs> she treated my pecker like a sauce bottle. Overall, a three out of 10 service, quite average. I only sp I paid for 30 minutes, but I only spent 15 minutes on the premises. All enthusiasm had long since evaporated. Totally true, ladies and gentlemen. I suggest if you want to hear more from that loving Lothario, I suggest you Google the name Sir Spunkalot. <laughs> that is the kind of guys we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Medals, everyone. Um, but we've got some more fantastic stories now. Uh, please welcome to the stage, Miss J. It is you. It is you. Please welcome Miss J. Well, hello. Hello. I like to think of myself as a student of human nature, limbering up my spiritual muscles as I meet all manner of humanity. So small penis humiliation, what's that about? <laughs> Apparently, there's a big <coughs> pressure out there. The idea being that the bigger your cock, the more manly you are. Well, if you're worried about that, you can always do what I do. Just strap it on. Any size you want. Big, small, massive, in the shape of a fist, shape of a garden gnome. There is a huge array out there to choose from. So huge, in fact, that I find myself looking around at times and thinking, but how? <laughs> If you're really, really concerned about size, the thing you need to ask yourself, gentlemen in the audience, is are you man enough to strap it on? <laughs> so, does size matter? Well, yes, but not in the way that you think. One of the most common questions I get asked as a mistress is, mistress, would you laugh at me because I have a small penis? I don't judge. Or in their case, I will. But only because I've been asked to very nicely and I'm more than happy to get paid while doing so. Hmm. One of my favourite clients of all time is a humiliation man. He's fit. You know, not bad looking. 
that the things that get him off are so messed up. Embarrassing seems to do the trick. Anything that really makes him cringe and me laugh, he's a perfect client, really. (laughs) I make him learn cheerleading routines off by heart. (laughs) And he comes and he performs them for me dressed in a pair of frilly pink panties and a t-shirt that reads Small Dick Cheerleading Squad (laughs) that he made at home and he brings his own homemade (laughs) pom-poms. He's really dedicated. You can see why I like him. And he says, he cheers me on. He's like, come on, mistress, come on. Be aggressive. B-E aggressive. B-E-A-G-G-E-S. Anyway, he's crap at spelling. He is so good at playing the role of humiliated wanker versus my bitch queen goddess from hell. I look for the cruelest, cruelest insults I can find. The things where I can really get close to the bone and I see him flinch. And he just plays it right back to me. He never ever drops a beat in his role as the obedient submissive point of my humiliation. We turn it into an art form. I tell him, I want him to write haikus about our sessions. I'm not joking. (laughs) Now, I actually wrote it down because, you know, I'm not going to remember that. So, yeah, his, his haikus. Ding! She stands above me, drip, drip. Spray torrents rain down, warming like the sun. Ding! (laughs) Drip, drip, tinkle, splash. Her feet either side of me, my face warm and wet. (laughs) Ding! At Christmas time, wearing a sexy Mrs. Santa outfit, he sings Christmas carols for me, which he's altered the lyrics so that they're all about how small his cock is. <laughs> really, it's true, completely. And what I do is I make him wank off over a piece of Christmas cake and then lick it up off the floor while I call him a revolting, tiny-dicked weirdo that even a sex-starved reindeer wouldn't want to fuck. <laughs> He tells me he has a secret crush and will bring photos to show me. I love confessions. (laughs) At our next session, he gets out a photo album and points to his crush. There she is, the maid of honour standing next to his wife. These are his (laughs) wedding photos. Like I say, he's messed up. I suppose the other side of humiliation is those relationships we find ourselves in where we didn't make a choice. Like, did anyone out there actually volunteer to be fucked over by the Tories? (laughs) Never fear. I do run a political rehabilitation service. (laughs) 
Once in a while, those opportunities arrive in real life to restore the balance of power, and they are immensely satisfying. <laughs> like the time I met a shy Tory. <laughs> he was a nice enough guy in a very sexually repressed sort of a way. He wore a tweed suit that was so tightly buttoned, it was hard to imagine how he could breathe in there. He worshipped Margaret Thatcher, and he seemed to think that a trickle-down economy would actually work. <laughs> but he came to see me because he just couldn't get past how his conservative beliefs had just twisted his sexuality. After a couple of hours out of that suit, spanked hard, buggered, with his pink cheeks glowing, he started to look a lot more relaxed and refreshed. <laughs> he came back often, but he just would not stop going on about how he supported the Tories. <laughs> I started to charge for extras. <laughs> The Ian Duncan Smith lunch tax. <laughs> the fucking liar subsidy for David Cameron and his promises about the bloody NHS. <laughs> I work current themes into our session. All right, I want to hear exactly how sorry you are about the lack of public housing. <laughs> Tell me you feel bad about how your mates are ripping us off and lining their own pockets. <laughs> Try and repeal the fox hunting ban, will you? <laughs> I make him strip naked and dress him in a bridle and harness. As I seize the reins, I say, I want to hear a whinny right now. Nay for me. He neighs loudly. And I chase him around the dungeon, lashing out with my hunting whip and taking great delight in shouting, Tally-ho! <laughs> One day, he writes me a very sweet note. He's loved every single minute of our sessions. Really, he has, but he has to say goodbye. The twisted, dirty things that we're doing together are creating a sort of odd dissonance for him between real life and what we do behind closed doors. He can't cope. He needs to go back into the pervert closet and button himself up in that tight tweed suit again. I suppose some people just are not cut out for freedom. <laughs> Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey! More notorious deeds by Lord Saul there. Um, so, I'm just bringing that out because I'm having a bit of a rest. No, I'm bringing it out because we've got our next storyteller. Are you ready? Please welcome to the stage, Princess! Hey everyone. There's been a whole lot of funny stories. I've totally loved those. But also I've found like a lot of stigma coming out as a sex worker. So I just wanted to do like a journey through sex work that I've had. So I'll start when I'm four. That's the first time that I started talking about sex work. My dad's a cameraman and uh, he was filming us all the time, just asking us all kinds of questions. He asked me when I was four what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I told him that I wanted to be a prostitute, <laughs> which is everybody can laugh, even though I said nobody laugh. You can laugh at my jokes if I crack jokes. <laughs> Please laugh, that would be very good. Anyway, I said I wanted to be a prostitute because I wanted to have lots of boyfriends. <laughs> That's pretty good. Little did I know I was going to turn out to be Polly anyway. I wasn't going to date just guys. I was going to date all kinds of people. And I do have many lovers. So, woo! I got my, got my dream. Yay! But also, I became a prostitute. So, yay! <laughs> woo! But... I think, like, what I've taken from that is that I didn't have internal whore phobia at the time, hey? Like, I just said it on camera. I want to be a prostitute. Like, who's going to say that when they have the stigma, right? So, that was my first kind of journey into talking about sex work. Then the next time, I kind of went dormant. Obviously, I had mainstream stuff about, like, sex workers, prostitutes, all that kind of stuff, like everyone does, right? Everyone hates sex workers. They're like... Scum of the scum, whatever, in mainstream media and society. Then I came across anarcho-feminism. Woohoo! Clap for that! Everybody loves that! <laughs> and obviously it's filled with like queers, political people, poor people, so there's going to be a lot of sex workers, right? People need money, people need jobs. 
Often the people in those communities, they can't get other jobs, so they turn to sex work. So it actually kind of got a bit glamorised for me. A lot of my queer mates, like all the like really like strong kind of people who own their sexuality were sex workers. So I got really excited about it again. I guess like my four-year-old came back out, right? I was like, wow, look at those powerful people. I want to be one of them. So I definitely wanted to do it, but I was really, really scared. In the meantime, along this, because I'm trying to do it chronologically, I had become a slut, like a self-proclaimed loving it up slut. Yeah. Yeah. Another clap for that, please. <laughs> Thanks. Not that having lots of sex is always the way to go, but it was for me. Giant sexual appetite, lived that up, loved it. A lot of hard work though, like really had to break down women having sex, lots of sex with lots of people, not as a bad thing. Broke that down. Then, my first venture into exchanging sex for money. I was in Melbourne. I was, mm, let's say like 24, maybe, right? One of my friends, one of these queer anarcho femme friends was a worker. I talked to all my friends for a really long time about wanting to do sex work, but I was really nervous. I had this whole idea that like, if you exchange sex for money, you'd basically become, I don't know, like dead or, I don't know, like something really bad would happen, right? Like something would happen in your mind or like all of a sudden you've done this thing and now you can never take it back. You're permanently damaged. Like all these weird ideas. I had all these weird ideas in my head, but I really, really wanted to do it because sex was so interesting to me and I wanted to know what it would be like to have sex and get some money and what that would feel like. So I really wanted to try it. So she was like a total sweetheart. She gave me her wig, like that she works in. She gave me her best outfit, her best heels. She took me along to her parlour. She treated me like a client. Like we went to the introduction room. I was the client. She introduced me to herself and talked about her services, took me up to the room. We basically did everything apart from have sex. It was the best introduction ever. It was uneventful. Like I did not die. I did not feel like I had been hurt irreparably and I couldn't get it back. I mean, maybe there are some people who have tried sex work and that's happened for them. And obviously that's really valid if that's their experience. But I really felt like I wouldn't be able to get something about myself back. And that didn't happen. And not that sex work is always like money and glory, but after that night, like, I, w I was travelling. I had left my job in New Zealand. I'd left my home, everything. I just had money to travel on. And I made $1,000 Australian that night. It changed my life. I was just like, holy shit. I have a new career. I have a new way of making money. I'm not going to die from having sex for money. The world has opened up. Right? So th this is what was happening for me with sex work. But getting back to stigma, so I moved to London. Met some amazing people. They hard out helped me get into the industry. Wouldn't have been able to do it without them. Mm. <laughs> but the stigma didn't go away. Like stigma is a crazy thing. And I have stigma about a lot, I've, I've had stigma about a lot of different parts of my identity over time. So for stigma with sex work, I thought it would be like coming out as queer. I just had to tell everybody and mostly have queer mates. So I tried that, I told everybody. I told my whole family, told all my friends, told whatever. Just I was not holding that shit back. And mostly got sex work friends. That did not work. Still has the stigma. Then the other night, a friend told me that for her, it was reading theory. 
And then I thought, that's what happened to me with feminism. It wasn't coming out as a feminist to my family or like only having feminist mates. It was reading theory. So that was kind of a new part for me. It was just last week. I realised, shit, I'm going to disseminate as much theory as I can and read as much theory as I can and work on the stigma shit. So that didn't have as many laughs as I wanted, the whole thing. <laughs> not the last bit, I mean like the whole story. You don't need to feel bad about not laughing at the last bit. That was serious stuff, theory, like come on, right? Anyway, I'm just going to tell a quick narrative about this poo story because everybody's been telling stories and I really want to tell an actual client story. So, I know I've had one light. I'm going to try and get it in before the second light. So, it is, which is basically like the poo story actually. It was a time restraint thing, right? So, I don't do hard sports. I'd love to, but I just, I don't have as much control over my bowel as I'd like to. So... <laughs> Not, not as in it comes out whenever, just as in I don't know, like I, I don't have a routine for my pooing or whatever. So a client requested a hard sports session. I wanted to do it. I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I don't like saying I can't do stuff. So I was like, yep, going to do that. So we booked it for early morning. But at this point, I wasn't working from home. I was working from my friend's place. And they lived an hour away. So I got up an hour before I even travelled the hour to get there and then the half hour to get ready. So this is like two and a half hours that you've gotten out of bed and you're trying to not go to the bathroom for the number two. Is that the number it is? No, number two, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, hold it on, hold it on. I'm really addicted to caffeine. Had to have caffeine even to get the, like, get the train there. So I've had the caffeine. I'm holding. And the client comes. Obviously, I don't want to be like, oh, yeah, you're in the door. I mean, this could have worked. Maybe I'll do it now. But I didn't want to be like, okay, you're in the door. Yeah, just lie down. It's happening right now. I didn't want to do that. So I did, like, I did the talking. I did, like, the chats, the money, the, like, sensual, like, ooh, this is what we're going to do. And then move it to the bathroom, right? In the bathroom. He's lying down near the shower. And I'm holding on, holding on to the bench. And I'm thinking, okay, this is the moment. Fuck, I'm getting a hard-out stage fright. I'm like... <laughs> Never done a shit on someone, really want to do a good job. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh. And so I'm like crouching over him. I don't want him to see my face because obviously I'm going to be struggling, right? <laughs> so I've got my butt to him. He's like, his head's down there. And I want it to land on his chest. And so I'm like, trying. It's not happening. And then I'm like, and then he's like, you can do it. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? The, like, in my head, I was thinking, I have fucked this up. <laughs> like, if a, if a slave is like, you can do it, obviously you're not in control. It, well, I mean, maybe you are, but I didn't feel like I was succeeding. And, but then I was like, you know what, I have to follow through with this anyway. That's just, that, that's just who I am. I'm going to see this to the end. So I'm holding on to the bench, like the hand-washing bench, bearing down, like really trying to squeeze that out. It comes out. It's this big. It's like a rabbit poo. But not only is it tiny, it's like really, really hard because I've waited so long. It landed on his chest and landed on the ground. It bounced off him. But I was prepared, I had gloves on. So I was like, you know what? That's not good enough. Picked it up, 
smushed it around, smushing it, really trying to make a deal. And then he was like, that's enough, that's enough. Little to say that client did not come back. <laughs> Thank you. started off really sensibly and then just descended into a story about poo. That's... We are normal people too, guys. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've got our, our final storyteller for this evening. Um, I really hope that you've, you've had a really good time. Um, but please welcome the final storyteller for this evening. We have the lovely Margaret Corbett. <laughs> Okay, you're a storytelling audience. So you've heard this one before. I had a fucked up mother. <laughs> she had Crohn's disease. She was in a lot of abdominal pain. And she was a doctor shopper. In America, we don't have the NHS. If you want pills, you go to the doctor. And she had five. <laughs> So if she got her prescription pain medication, she was very happy wandering around the house, being a woo, or maybe asleep in bed. And if she didn't get her prescription medication, she was very, very angry. Now, on my side of the table, I was a fucked up kid. So if you tried to diagnose me with something today, you'd probably diagnose me with Asperger's syndrome, but I never heard of that when I was a kid. All I knew that a social interaction for me was like putting a pound in a fruit machine. You might get the jackpot, or you might get a stinging verbal rebuke. But I knew one way to convince any authority figure in my life that I was the shit, that I was the bee's knees, and that was writing. So I could sit down in half an hour, write a poem, or an essay, or a short story, and trot up, all proud of myself, to the authority figure of choice, show it to them, read it to them, and they would be very happy with me. I remember many times having a fallout with my, with my nuclear family, my mom, dad, brothers, and sisters, and I would sit down, write a poem, pick up the phone, call my grandma and grandpa in Toronto, and read it to them, and they would say, that makes my heart sing. And that was a way that I had to feel connected to my family. Even if I was the black sheep, I was connected with them. Now I grew up, my mother passed away when I was 14 years old. Uh, with some guilt and some pride, I remember the first thing that came into my head. It was that little dictum from the Wizard of Oz, ding dong, the witch is dead. <clears throat> it's true. Um, you know, well, after she was dead, I had the freedom to go around and go to poetry readings, smoke things I shouldn't have smoked, drink things I shouldn't have drunk, screw people I should not have screwed. Good grades, they, they, they answer for a lot. Graduated high school, went to university, left university, went to the United Kingdom, and I took up politics. I worked in, in politics because I wanted to make my family proud. I wanted to show them that I was a serious person. Now, enough 80 and 100 hour weeks, you know, that caused me a nervous breakdown. So I pissed off. I went from Scotland to the southwest of the UK, to Cornwall. It's a beautiful place, Cornwall, but there's not a lot of work. 
So after a few years of marginal employment in the tourist industry, I said, fuck it. I'm taking up sex work. I've had this, this habit of shagging people, doing BDSM, all kinds of stuff. Let's put this to, you know, let's make some money off of this. So, <laughs> and it worked, it was fantastic. Um, after about a year or so of doing sex work, I had enough confidence that I picked up my pen and I began to write again. Not because of the nature of my work, but because it was work, because I could earn a living, because I could run my business and decide its future. That may be something for many of the people in this audience that is second nature, but for me, it was a breath. It was a ray of light. And so I picked up my pen and I started writing and my writing took off like a shot. I was able to get columns in major publications, but I was not able to tell my family about a word of it because every word came from the fact that I was a sex worker. This gulf, this rift was so broad that when my lovely husband, Bob, everyone say hi to Bob here. <clears throat> hi, Bob. He drove, he drove me here all the way from Plymouth, Devon tonight, so yeah. But you know what? We got married. It was the best day of my life. And I could not invite my family because I was a coward. I could not have my big day be around a lie. And then after the wedding, a few months ago, I got a phone call from my grandparents in Toronto. They're in their 90s. And they said quite plaintively, please come and visit us so we can meet your husband and we can see that you're happy. Now, I didn't want to do it because, you know, I don't like traveling. Being a sex worker, it's not trivial. So, you know, I got onto an airplane with Bob. I took my phone, did a factory reset. I had already taken my ads down. And so we got off the plane. We went through the border. And it could have been sheer luck, but it was probably my privilege as a white English-speaking woman. But we were waved through without a second glance. In the rental car on the way to my grandma and grandpa's flat, I logged back into my phone and I downloaded a little file on Google Drive. That was my portfolio, all of my writing. And that phone stayed in the back of my jeans pocket like a rock made of silicon and coltan. And it was just the same as the rock, the stone, weighting down my tongue. Because when we walked through the front door of that flat, my grandma and my grandpa, they were very happy to see us, but there was no heart left to sing. The light in their eyes had dimmed. They could still take care of themselves, barely, and each other, but we had the same conversations multiple times over breakfasts and dinners. Are you happy? Yes, Grandma. Are you making a lot of money? Yes, Papa Sam. We are doing all right. Are you still singing? Are you still writing? No, Grandma. And we got on the airplane after a week, and we went home. We had sat on the couch of my grandma and my grandpa before we left for an hour, looking for 30 seconds of my sister on CNN News, her celebration of a great victory of work. And I was very, very proud of her. But that stone weighed in my back pocket and in my mouth. So we got back on the plane and we went home. A few weeks ago, 
my sister phoned me. She said, I'm having a baby. She said, I have read your writing as Margaret Corvid. She said, it is very good. She said, I approve of your job. It's okay, you can do it now because I approve of it. <laughs> yeah. And she said, and she said, do not tell. Do not tell anyone else from the family. And there she sits, a new baby growing in her belly and a sweet, happy child already with her. And there my father sits in upstate New York with his forelocks hanging down and he stands up and tucks them under his baseball cap before he goes out to walk the dog. And there my grandma and my grandfather sit, waiting, wondering what has happened, what has become of me. Have I made something of myself? And they will never know. But what I have learned, what I have learned is that it does not matter. The best way that I can give respect to my grandparents and all of the patient teachers who taught me to write, who drove those words character by character, syllable by syllable into my head, into my tired, anxious, terrified head, the best way that I can honor them is not to seek the approbation of my family. It is simply to write and to make sure that every word, every character, every syllable is based on me, is based on who I am and the values that I hold dear. Thank you very much. Been a good night, isn't it? Yay! And now I might be wrong, uh, but I kind of think they should do it again. Maybe? What do you think? Yes, good. And it'll be raising a bit more awareness to to pledge de crim. Yes. There is a Twitter hashtag if you want it. Hashtag pledge de crim, isn't it? And uh, the English Collective Prostitutes. Uh, they're running that at the moment, and it's fantastic. It's been raising a lot of awareness for, for, for more decriminalisation. Uh, more decrim... Just decriminalisation. Just. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a wine. I've had a wine. Uh, there's a reason I only get paid for an hour. Um, so... Uh, it's been absolutely fantastic and I'm really, really so proud to have been part of it. Uh, and thank you ladies for all of your stories. Can we give a massive round of applause to everyone who has been a storyteller tonight? To Tony, to Eddie, to Ava, where is she? To Ellie, to Mistress Jay, to Princess and to Margaret Corbett! Absolutely amazing night, Anna, and give yourselves a massive round of applause. This has been Spark for Sex Worker Open University. Good night! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 